0: People talk a lot about artists making money from streaming, but do you understand how streaming services actually pay? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we break down the pool model for streaming and discuss potential alternatives. It's all coming up on The Future of What.
1: Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lift the crumbs from your
2: table? Can I interfere in your crisis?
1: No, mind your own business. No,
0: mind your own business. Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Vicki Nauman of Cross Border Works. Vicki, welcome back to The Future of What. Thank you so much. Good to be here. So today we are tackling a topic. I mean, I feel like we should maybe even call this a 101 because this is something that I think nobody really understands. I mean, very few people, certainly not artists. Right. And it's really important. And the topic is, what's the model of how streaming services pay? And I think people just assume it's a per stream rate. And that, you know, however many streams you get, that's how much money you get. So I wanted you to come on because you are the guru. You are a person who knows many things in the industry and sort of set us all straight and give us the straight dope about how streaming services pay.
3: Sure. Well, I've done a lot of licensing. I've probably done more licensing than is advisable. <laughs> and I've I've looked at all sorts of different models because you have to think about it holistically. You have to think about, What's the value proposition to the end consumers and the music listeners? What are you promising them? And then how do you strike the deals in order to light up the music into a product? And then how do you parse out the money? And then how do you settle and pay out on the back end? Right. And all of these things have the potential of changing the formula and changing who gets what. There have been a lot of different models over the last, you know, 10, 15 years that have been tried. And one of the first ones was very early streaming service was a penny per play. So every time a song was streamed, there was a penny that was generated as a royalty. Now, this is great for rights holders because then they know exactly, they can calculate exactly how much it is. A penny per play now, you know, that's actually pretty healthy royalty rate. But the problem for the streaming service was that, and this was probably in the mid-2000s, the problem for the streaming service is they're offering the consumer a value proposition of having access to everything for one low price. So if people actually stream a lot, then that would put the streaming service itself in the red because they have a cap on how much they're charging the consumer. So that was a really early model that just didn't work for everyone. So then there were, you know, then in an a la carte world, it's a little bit different. And then in radio style streaming, it's different. But where we've evolved as a part of this evolution of streaming models is basically a pro rata model, which means that you take all of the streams, it's kind of a big pool of data and revenues. So you take all of the money for a subscription service, and you put that into one pool, and then you take all the aggregate streams, put those in another pool, you divide them, and you come out with a per stream rate. What this has done is this has created an environment where if I'm streaming, if I just streamed all of one music, all I did was listen to Andrew Bird for an entire month, my 9.99 would not go to Andrew Bird. It would not be divided out amongst all the streams that I did with Andrew Bird and his publishing. It would go into this big pool. And so that big pool then has a lot of different dynamics to it that determine what that per stream rate is. It can vary depending on how many songs each consumer listens to. It can vary based on what your price plan is, because even though we know all the streaming services generally have a price of $9.99 a month, their family plans, their discount plans, there's bundles, there's hard bundles, there's soft bundles. There's probably 10 to 15 different price points that are always being calculated. So that has an effect. And then the structure of the licensing deals with major stakeholders are often done based on market share and minimum revenue guarantees, and that is has played in, in, in this as well. So all of the money that goes into streaming services right now is, in some senses, the most democratized settlement because we say, okay, we'll just say everybody's equal, all the money in one pool, all of the streams in another, you divide it out and everybody gets the same per stream rate. But there's a school of thinking that doesn't quite work for all of the artists and for all of the stakeholders in the same way. When you are a major label and a major stakeholder, you usually have a complex deal structure that will protect you and make sure that you get your minimum revenue guarantees. But for those that are in the middle, the independent labels, independent artists, artists that are just doing distribution deals, they're the ones that are unprotected in this. And so we have a lot of unknowns, but there's some thinking that if we structured the rights differently and calculated my personal money that I've paid for the streaming service and my personal streaming patterns and my money is just divided amongst those, that that would be more fair.
0: Right. I totally want to get to that. That's like our next thing to unpack. But I kind of want to try to be even more specific about what you've basically told us about what I think we're just calling the pool system. Yeah. That's how these things are now referred to. Yeah. So let's take a band on my label, right? Okay. Okay. We have artists that are all over the place in terms of number of streams, right? You know, obviously, Elliot Smith is going to stream a lot. A smaller, more punk, more obscure band is probably going to stream a lot less. The pool system, by what you're telling me, though, is fairly equitable in that both Elliott Smith and the smaller band are going to receive the same per stream rate because the rate is determined by this pool system.
3: Correct. Okay.
0: So there's equity in that, but there's also the potential. I mean, I've heard before that there's the potential for sort of not necessarily abuse of the system, but, you know, one of the characteristics of the system could be that larger artists are necessarily always going to make a larger share of the pie because of the way this is structured.
3: Right. There've been some tests, you know, WIMP before it became Tidal and before it became part of Jay-Z's group, you know, they did a study in Norway, and they calculated out that they felt that in a big pool versus a per user royalty distribution, that the smaller and mid-tier artists were the ones that benefited and that the very big artists at the very top and the very small artists at the bottom got about the same. The artists at the top may have lost a little bit of share, but it was a really, really limited study.
0: Why would that have been in your opinion? Why why would they have lost a little bit?
3: I think that they would have lost a little bit because they were analyzing a limited data set and they were looking at streaming patterns, you know, and this is Norway and so I don't know what the dispersion is of the most popular artists and the indie versus major artists and long tail. So there's a lot of other factors that play into it, but I think that what they looked at was early data that was probably showing how much different people listen to different artists and that if you recalculated based on each user's behavior and pattern, that more money would go to those middle tier artists. Mm. I will tell you that I'm not 100% convinced about all of this, though, so. <laughs> because there are a lot of other things that are at play. You know, Do people who listen to big pop acts, do they have different listening patterns than people who listen to independent music and middle-tier artists? I don't know. You know, we, we haven't tested that. We don't really know what that behavior is. You know, the, another big factor right now in our world is how much time does everybody have to spend streaming music? You know, do people who skew toward the big mainstream act? do they have more or less time to stream music than those who are more indie focused i don't know so those are factors that make a difference as well of just what the what the entire listening behavior is around demographics and i will say from the years that i spent in radio before i started doing digital music is that you know when you start targeting different demographics of the total music fan base you do get very different patterns and you do get really different kind of listening behaviors. And so I don't think that we've completely isolated out the right factors to test. If we just take a really broad-based streaming platform like Spotify or Apple Music, it wouldn't be that difficult to recalculate a sample of royalties to see what would happen. But one of the things that I think is a factor in this is that people who have really wide-ranging tastes And who might go and listen to a really, really wide cross-section of artists, that's going to produce a very different kind of royalty set than people who cling to a couple of playlists and cling to a handful of artists. And the fraud that has come out of, I think it was in Bulgaria, where they had a big fake streaming bank of phones that were set up and streaming fake accounts, That would be alleviated in a per-user distribution because each user could only have X number of hours to be able to listen per day. You know, In my view, I, I feel like fraud is definitely something that needs to be monitored, but I don't feel like that's the big motivation to test this out.
0: Right. That's something that's been called stream manipulation. Right. And that's something that we are also going to do an episode on at some point, because that's something that's quite interesting, but a totally different topic. I know a lot of people are really concerned about that right now, because that data is coming out more and more that those places exist and that they're driving up the stream rates of all sorts of different artists. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So we'll get into that at some point. So just to be totally clear, the total amount of money that, like, let's say the streaming service brings in in a month is divided by the total number of streams in that month. And there's a rate is determined, a per stream rate. And then is each artist paid for the actual number of streams he or she gets times that rate?
3: Yeah, theoretically they are. You know, if they've taken in advance from a label or there's other kinds of calculations internally within the label structure, that kind of, you know, I always like to interject that because I think a lot of times artists and songwriters when they get their royalty statements, they don't take into consideration that they may be still recouping or they may have a different deal with their label. But from the digital service provider's standpoint, yes, they're calculating all of this and then they're paying all of that out. And that monthly volume of streams and revenue, that essentially means that the royalty rate, that per stream royalty rate can fluctuate quite a lot. Right.
0: Monthly, it sounds like.
3: Yeah, exactly. Wow then there's a different calculation. Like with Spotify, they have a free tier and then there's a paid tier. And I would imagine that with any services that have multi-tiers, you know, high fidelity tier, another tier, that those streams are isolated against whatever that consumer was paying. So if there's a student plan or a family plan and they're not paying $9.99 per user, but they're paying $12.99 per five users or something like that, that would also impact the royalty rate.
2: Grace Cathedral Hill All wrapped in bones of setting sun All dust and stone and moribund I paid twenty-five cents to light a little white can day, I sat and watched it burn away Then turned and we through slow decay We were both a little hungry So we went to get a hot dog Down the Hyde Street Pier the light was sliding, disappeared The air, it stunk of fish and beer We heard a superman trumpet with the national anthem And the world may be lost. Sing 53 bucks to buy.
0: That was Grace Cathedral Hill by the Decembrists. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. Also, check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's Potty Mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Vicki Nauman of Cross Border Works. I think it's so important for us to talk about this because, I mean, I'm sure you recall a couple of years ago, there was this massive, like, freak out about transparency. Like, that was the watchword of the day. And I feel like, you know, labels got hit especially hard with that. But I feel like people need to understand this because this stuff is not necessarily transparent to us on the label side right. before we even get the money to the artist. <laughs> like Exactly. This is, Really complicated.
3: Well, it is really complicated. And there are a lot of things about this that I I feel like there are unintended consequences, you know, because in the one sense you say, Okay, great, what is it going to take for digital music to really thrive? Well, we need scale. So we need a lot of users. We need them to be paying money. And in order for them to continue to subscribe and pay money, they have to use the service. So we want to encourage consumers to use the services as much as possible. But all of these things, the more a consumer, the more people stream, then it will drive down the per stream rate. So there's a counterintuitive thinking here that you think, okay, well, the highest per stream rate is what we want. Well, do you really because <laughs> right. you you actually really want a volume of users and you want them listening to as much music as possible because that will keep them coming back and keep them paying. You could have a dollar per stream rate and have very very few people that are on it and you're not going to make very much money, but if you have tens of millions of consumers that are streaming really heavily, then you might have a much, much lower per stream rate, but you've got a volume way. Exactly. And I think the volume piece of this is where smaller, more niche artists are losing out.
0: Mm, gotcha, yeah.
3: Because, you know, like I love Zoe Keating. I love her music. But are there tens of millions of people that are going to create enough volume for an artist like that, or an up-and-coming act, or your emerging punk act, are there enough people that are going to make the derived per stream rate meaningful to a more niche or up-and-coming artist? And the answer is probably no. And in the world when people could sell CDs out of their trunk and maybe do downloads, those were higher margins. And so you didn't have to have such a huge volume for that revenue to be meaningful. Absolutely. But of course, with CDs and downloads, you pay once and then there's no recurring revenue stream. Right. So a lot of this is really about volume and attachments between the fan and the artist over the course of time and staying power.
0: Exactly, And that's why we talk about stuff like, you know, we in the industry talk about, you know, how one of the great opportunities for growth in streaming services is really genre-specific, exactly. because right now, you know, streaming services are killing it in hip-hop and pop, but really not almost anywhere else. And maybe, like, you know, something and chill music, like whatever and chill. <laughs> like, if you can chill to this music, right. you're doing fine on the streaming services. But, you know, the other genres are really sort of lacking. But to me, that's just an opportunity for growth, because there's tons of people out there who want to listen to this music. They're just not finding it on streaming services in a way that is working.
3: I agree. I completely agree with you. And I think that because all the streaming services are focused on scale, they're focused on the broadest possible appeal, the most mainstream acts, which are now hip hop and pop, that's going to be where their focus is because Mm -hmm. that's where they're going to have the most potential of getting consumers in and the broadest possible appeal. But I don't believe that that means that rock and punk and jazz and some of the more specialized interest areas in, in our you know, music landscape, I don't think that the message there is that people don't want to listen to those things. I think that it's really about, will these more niche and genre-based consumers, will they be meaningful enough to digital service providers that they're going to really try to serve those consumers better? And the jury for me on that is, is out because I don't know whether or not the broad-based, all-you-can-eat streaming services will be able to serve the segment. I'm with you where I feel like there's a really big opportunity for greater segmentation and some consumers are overserved by having access to all the greatest pop and hip-hop on every single service that's out there. But there's a lot of consumers that are underserved because they have to hunt and pack and really kind of find the music that they want and make their own playlists. And it may not be quite the structure of how they want to engage, which is an opportunity.
1: Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Now, you have been doing a lot of consulting in the music and tech arenas lately, which is really cool because I think that is an area that's actually finally coming into its own. I think for years we had tech companies who were like, you know, solving problems that we didn't have. Right. But now suddenly we have all these companies that are springing up that are actually solving problems we do have, which is great. I just feel like somehow tech and music has merged in this great way. So, what do you think, just totally philosophically, about this idea that I keep hearing bandied about, which is, what if there was a totally independent streaming service run by artists for artists? Do you think that that has any viability in this marketplace at all?
3: I do. I think that there's a lot more room in the marketplace than many people think. You know, when we look at the total number of subscribers of music streaming services, and I don't know what the total figure is globally now, but it's definitely under 200 million when you think about that, you think, well, that's not really serving everyone. There's still a lot of people who listen to terrestrial radio, who listen to, you know, CDs in their old collection. There's a lot of room to serve different audiences. So I do feel like having something that's a different value proposition around fans and artists and supporting their artists with a different business model, I feel like When we think about user-centric royalty distribution versus the big pool, I feel like it has to start there. And it has to start with a different vision for a platform and a service. And I can't imagine anything better than something that is connecting the artists and the fans. And there's a very wide cross-section of music consumers that do not care where their money goes when they subscribe to Spotify or Apple or Google. They just want access to the music and whatever, you know, they're not going to die on the hill of whether or not their 999 is distributed to the artists that they listen to. But I think there's another cross section of consumers who care very passionately about this. And I think there's room to appeal to those consumers. And you know, I feel like one of the biggest barriers and one of the reasons why these kinds of services have not really taken hold because there have been a number of attempts at this of different models over the years. And part of it is the way that licensing is done and that you've got independent labels that are distributed by arms of major labels and they don't necessarily all make sense in how you would license and who wants to be in this, you know, new co-streaming service. And then the publishing has been so extraordinarily challenging and risky. And now with the Music Modernization Act and with the MLC and blanket licenses coming in, at least in this country, for subscription, Section 115 subscription streaming, I feel like that lowers the barrier a lot to a a company that might want to come in and be that artist to fan, different model, different value proposition than what we have today. And I'm also not convinced that these things are cannibalistic. I can imagine a time, I mean, I subscribe to Spotify and Pandora now because I feel like these are two really different experiences. But I could imagine a time where people, you know, would subscribe to Apple and they would also subscribe to something that is much more about them engaging directly with artists. But that probably has to be flushed out more of what's in that new service that will differentiate it Besides just the royalty distribution model, you know, are there other kind of perks or other ways for artists and fans to engage in a different way in a platform like that than they do in broad all you can eat streaming services?
0: I think that's an excellent point. And I immediately think of we have Apple TV or whatever it's called now when you just you don't have regular TV, you just have, you know, streaming yeah TV. And, you know, we have Netflix and Hulu right? Yeah. Like, exactly. Exactly. To me that makes perfect sense. Like you want the different shows, so you get the different services. And we seem to have found a consumer price point that works for a lot of people. Yeah, what do you think about that? I meant to ask you about that earlier. Do you feel like there's room in the marketplace for the monthly rate to go above 9.99 and do you think that that would be helpful?
3: Well, I do feel like there's room for that. I mean, I have been a subscriber to Netflix since they started streaming and I can't even count the number of price increases. And does it make me want to cancel it? No, because I'm still getting value out of it. And I think that there is a lot of room to get people to bump up to $12.99 or whatever, whatever that next threshold is. But my only caution on it is that I think, for building the next generation and keeping kids and people that are coming in and they're, you know, 16 to 24, they probably are more price sensitive. And people who are younger are probably a little bit more likely to say, oh, you know, I'm going to go to the free version. I'll suffer through ads. But I think there is absolutely room for a price adjustment in music. And I think Now we've gotten to the point where we have enough volume and we have enough uptake of streaming that it's time to do that. With the family plans and the other ways that younger people can get discounts, I think that that's a a nice safety net for all the services to cover the younger demographic. Awesome.
0: Well, Vicki Nauman of Cross Border Works, thank you so much for being with me today on The Future of What?
3: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Puppet Charm by 210 Boa. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at MerchTable.com. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Lewis Posen of Hopeless Records. Lewis, welcome back to The Future of What.
4: Thank you so much for having me, Portia. Appreciate it.
0: Always good to talk to you. So today we're doing sort of a 101 for listeners on how streaming services pay, because I feel like People talk a lot about a per stream rate, but most people don't understand about the pool system and how that royalty rate is calculated and how it changes. So I had Vicki Nauman come on and she did a great job of explaining that. So I wanted to have you on to talk about the ideas that are out there that are sort of alternatives to the way that this pool model is actually functioning. So lay it on us.
4: (laughs) You may have covered this, so most streaming services use the pool model, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google. so they're all using that pool model where whatever revenue comes in is then going to be a paid out pro rata based on what was streamed during that month. And it may have been discussed already that you know there's some upsides and downsides to that. The main downside is that it's a zero-sum game. So anyone who's getting a lot of streams is pulling money away from the people who are getting less streams. And that could be good for some people and bad for others. The main people it could be bad for are people who are artists or labels that are in niches where they're very engaged and dedicated fans, but there's a limit. You know, There's a ceiling to that number of people because of that style or other factors. So if they're getting the same amount of streams and other people are getting more, it just means every stream from that artist and label is going to be worth less. There are other models that have been looked at. The main one that's been looked at is user-centric model, which would be that if someone pays a monthly fee, their money is isolated to the music that they play, which on a logical level, it makes a lot of sense. You know, if they're going to pay $9.99 a month, shouldn't it go to the artists and rights holders that are specific to what they were interested in? When looking at that, and there's been a few people who have done research on it, including, I think, one of the streaming services, Deezer, did some work on this, it benefits some artists and rights holders, and, and it hurts others. So most of these have winners and losers to them. There's been a few other things circulating, and one of which is something that I've been suggesting we do, which is take the pool model, which seems to work for the most amount of people, but doesn't work for everyone, and find something that works for all people, but especially those in the area that I mentioned earlier in the niches. And that is to offer a product where a fan can pay more for more music and more access to that artist. And that way, it's not affecting the general pool, but that fan can decide, hey, I'm willing to pay a dollar or two or three dollars more to get stuff while the band's in the studio or extra tracks that they don't put on the album or live tracks that don't get released. And, you know, there could be other things part of that service, just like a digital fan club might look like where you have, you know, chats and, you know, live streams from artists. So there's other things that could be added on. But generally, the idea would be, more music for a small amount of money. That way, that extra money could go directly to the artist or rights holder of what they're paying more for and doesn't have to be part of the pool. So it's a hybrid model that takes the pool system and the foundation and then adds on a separate money that goes only to that artist and rights holder that that fan wants to pay extra for.
0: So just to reiterate, you know, in that model, you know, each person would still pay their $9.99 or whatever subscription fee, and that money would go towards the pool model. But then if you were, you know, a huge Taking Back Sunday fan or something, I'm just throwing something out there, and you wanted to pay two extra dollars to go to that band, then that band would actually receive that money directly from the streaming service?
4: They would with the same split that's the agreement between that streaming service and however they're getting those recordings. So say the, the band is on Hopeless, we would make the deal with, say, Spotify, and then they would pay us and we would pay the artists.
0: Got it. Now, do you recall there was a piece put out by Media, which is like a media research company in the U.K., not that long ago, about this idea. It's a, a different idea where the artist would also get like a little extra money, but that money would somehow come from the labels. I thought that was a weird concept.
4: I read the article a couple times and I know, you know, you were on a group that circulated it and it still, after reading it several times, didn't make much sense to me. It looked like an idea of, okay, how can we, help the situation that I mentioned where artists are not making as much as they should be from the dedicated fans, and so why not have the label pay them more than other artists on the label? And I think that becomes very complicated and tricky how you decide which artists are going to get paid more than other artists, and that puts the onus on the label to decide that. So I think it was an odd concept. That didn't make much sense. I'm sure someone had a good idea somewhere in there, and then it turned out to be something that didn't make sense.
1: Right.
0: And from a label perspective, it was like, oh, good, you know, we can just go ahead and pay more of the smaller and the more diminishing pile of money that we have out instead of DSPs, which at this point, you know, have not really stepped forward to do much in terms of the initial support of a band, which is what labels really do well. So, I think that it's important for people to understand how this works just for the fact that most people don't understand it. But I also think it's important because I like how it spotlights a very central issue in our ecosystem, in the music world, which is, you know, I think it's hard for people to understand. You know, I think when people think about artists getting paid, they think of it as a very one to one transaction, right? Which is you go to a store and you buy a CD or you buy an LP, and that's the money that goes to that band. And the fact, of digital streaming services has just really upended that direct one-to-one model. Wouldn't you agree?
4: I think it's maybe made it more complicated because there's more... Details in the transaction in streaming than there are in a physical product sale. But I still think there are have always been people between the sale and the artist, whether that be a retailer and a distributor and a label. So there could be less cooks in the kitchen because you can drop out one or two of those parties in the middle of the two because of the streamlined nature of digital. But Streaming is just so much more complicated how people get paid. It's not even as easy as just saying a pool of money and then pro rata share It gets paid out once the service takes their share. Look, there's things like 90-day trials. There's things like the family plan. There's the student plans. All of these things affect what an artist is getting paid because there are deductions to that revenue that's going out to the rights holder and the artist.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
4: Yeah, so it's not as simple as saying, "Okay, you paid 9.99 as a fan, and say the service is taking 30% off the top." Everyone's different, but it's not like 70% is then going out to the rights holders and artists. There's all kinds of things that affect that. At which territory and which product did they get that? service directly through the streaming service, or do they get it as a bundle through their cellular company? There's a different payment method per stream or per user based on those different products.
0: Exactly. And that's the point I'm trying to make is it's a very different value proposition then, one, I, the fan, like this band, and I'm going to go buy a physical product for a certain amount of money, let's just say $10. Yeah. You know, and a portion of that money is going to go directly to that artist because that's the artist that I like, and that's the LP or CD that I bought. Yeah. And for nine ninety nine 99 a month, I have access to literally everything, like all music. You know, that is a completely different value proposition. It's really not the same thing because there's no way that all of the music in the world is really worth nine ninety nine. Do you know what I mean? It's yes. I think it's worth vastly more. Right. Right. <laughs> it's just such a bizarre thing that we're we're trying to fit a square peg in a round mm-hmm. hole all the time.
4: Yeah, many people would argue, and I bet you'd be on that list, that music for whatever reason has underpriced itself. You look in the film and TV world, yeah, you may pay 10 or 11 or 12 bucks for Netflix, but then you're also paying for Amazon Prime and you're also paying for Hulu and you're also paying for five other services. So you're paying a lot more than $9.99 for all your film and TV needs and you're not even getting everything at that point. So music, I agree, is vastly undervalued. How it got that way, there's a lot of different theories behind that and at some point, I think we all hope that music fans and the streaming services and the rights holders all agree, you know what, music should be worth more, so there should be a higher price for this. But that's partly how the model that I suggested helps in that way, because it allows then the artists and the rights holders to add more without trying to change the whole industry. And so I think it's a first step in saying let's remake that connection between artists and fans and the value proposition between them.
0: Excellent. I agree. I I think that that's a cool model.
4: There is a service called AWA out of Japan that has launched what they call an artist tier, and it's very similar to the model that I just mentioned. They're testing it with five or ten artists right now, the difference between the model I just mentioned is that you can add that on if your account is a free ad-supported tier. So, so you don't want to pay $9.99. You just want the limited service that you get with ads, but you really want to focus on a particular artist. You could pay 2 or $3 specifically to get extra music and access to that artist.
0: And do we have any feedback yet on how that's working?
4: Launched about two weeks ago.
0: Okay, so yeah. No, not yet. <laughs>
4: But what it tells me are people are thinking the same thing we're talking about and are willing to test this out. We're only going to know if this works if one of the bigger global services decides to do it. And I think it's just a matter of time before one does because they're all trying to differentiate themselves from each other. There's no reason someone would have to have an Apple Music and a Spotify account. I don't discourage people from doing that, but very similar music is on both. So... I think people are trying to differentiate themselves, and one may decide, hey, one way we could do that is by offering an artist here or this product where rights holders and artists can provide more to their fan for more money. Cool.
0: Well, Lewis Posen, thanks so much for being with us again on the future of what?
4: Thanks for having me.
2: Peace
0: That was Thistled Spring by Horse Feathers. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard the Decembrists, Tutanboa, Horse Feathers, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week.